Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and Church History. This is the last podcast in the three-part series called Passport to Heaven from 1843 to 1844. Brother K. Godfrey. Welcome, and it's good to be with you again. Today's podcast is going to cover a variety of interesting things. In particular, it's going to discuss the building of the, uh, the Nauvoo Temple and Joseph's candidacy for President of the United States. I brought with me a couple of things. I've got this stone right in front of me. It's one of the larger intact pieces of the original Nauvoo Temple that I'm aware of. It was given to me by some of the citizenry of Nauvoo. It's got some interesting features to it. The front of it, as you can see, is kind of pecked flat with striations or design along the bottom. And then on this particular side over here, it's flat again with striations on the side here, indicating that this was a corner piece or a cornerstone. And the striations are very similar to what we would see on the steps of the Nauvoo Temple. I'm feeling that there's a good chance that this was a step stone uh, leading into the Nauvoo Temple. And if that be the case, then this was put in place somewhere around 1842 and prior to the death of Joseph, which makes the stone pretty significant to me. And then we're going to be discussing in detail today also Joseph's candidacy for President of the United States. I have here a very interesting statement by Joseph Smith on February the 7th, 1844, which I'll read in just a moment, but it kind of portrays here Abraham Lincoln and Joseph Smith. Abraham Lincoln, as you know, won the presidency in 1861, and Joseph was running for president in 1844. Uh, some of the uh, platform that we would read about of Abraham Lincoln, whose picture is behind me on the right here, is very, very similar to the platform of Joseph Smith um, some 25 years or so uh, earlier. And I think it's really indicative of, uh, of the prophet Joseph Smith to have said the following. Again, this is February 7th, 1844. He says, uh, My quiet thoughts have for a long time troubled me when I view the condition of men throughout the world, and more especially in the boasted realm where the Declaration of Independence and these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Yet at the same time, some three million of our people are held as slaves for life because of the spirit in them is covered with a darker skin than ours. Our common country should present to all men the same advantages, the same facilities, the same prospects, the same honors, and the same rewards. And the Constitution which guarantees these rights meant just that, that exactly what it said without reference to color or condition. And of course, this is going to be a platform item of Joseph Smith and certainly was a platform item of uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1861. Let's begin our podcast today. Uh, as we uh, as we left off last time, it was uh, the mid to the latter part of 1843, and this particular podcast is going to take us up through uh, a few months prior to the death of Joseph Smith. By the end of August, Joseph had moved into the mansion house, and by mid-September, the home was open as a hotel for visiting guests. Joseph now had a beautiful home where guests could be given proper courtesies. 
Now, the summer of 1843 seemed to be the calm before the storm. It was in the fall that friends turned foe and started their unrelenting attacks on Joseph. An anti-Mormon political party was formed by Thomas Sharp of Warsaw. John C. Bennett, ex-mayor of Nauvoo, had already shown his colors, and now it was Sidney Rigdon's turn. Sidney was postmaster of Nauvoo for a brief period of time. Due to jealousy of the prophet, he did everything he could to secretly hurt him. He opened nearly all of Joseph's mail before it was delivered in an effort to gain information that might be used against him. At a conference of the church on Sunday, August 13th, the prophet accused him of being in covenant to betray him to the Missourians. Now, Sidney was then disfellowshipped. However, on October the 8th, at a conference of the church, Sidney defended his actions with an eloquent appeal and was permitted to retain his station as counselor in the First Presidency. President Joseph Smith then arose and said, and I quote, I have thrown him off my shoulders, and you've again put him back on me. You may carry him, but I will not. Joseph had lost all confidence in his first counselor. During the fall and winter of 1843, hundreds upon hundreds of saints arrived from the British Isles and other missions of the church. It wasn't all work. On September the 4th, Joseph and his family were well entertained. Joseph took the opportunity to take a little time off and attend a visiting circus. It was also in September that Joseph started bringing others, including women, into the elite endowment group. On September 28th, Joseph, by common consent and unanimous voice, was chosen president of this endowed quorum and received his second anointing and was ordained to the highest holiest order of the priesthood as a king and a priest. The group of special friends became known as the Holy Anointed Quorum. Over the next nine months, Joseph administered the sacred temple ordinances to nearly 70 people. The members of the Holy Anointed Quorum viewed expulsion from their ranks with grave seriousness. In December of 1845, Heber C. Kimball said, Originally, Joseph admitted nine persons into the Holy Order. Five are now living, two are dead, and two, William Law and William Marks, are worse than dead. The Holy Quorum met semi-weekly. They were taught the order of prayer and became an ecclesiastical body where revelations could be tested. Now, the nucleus of the group was the twelve apostles. Joseph gave to them their first and second anointings and committed the keys of the kingdom and every gift and power that he had. Joseph was preparing these brethren for the future. In the fall of 43, it was filled with a variety of unsavory events, Joseph did, however, enjoy one October evening when a phrenologist came into town and asked to examine the bumps on Joseph's head. He consented and said, and I quote, It was a very pleasant experience. Now, the pleasantries ended there. On November 5th, after dining, Joseph was taken suddenly very sick. He went to the door and vomited profusely, dislocating his jaw and drawing blood. Every indication was that he had been poisoned. On November 19, 1843, the Missourian mobs became bolder and more bolder. They crossed the Mississippi River and kidnapped Philander Avery, who was living near Warsaw. And then on December 2nd, the same group of Missourians kidnapped Daniel Avery, Philander's father. 
Now, Philander made his escape on December 14th, and on Christmas Day, Daniel was liberated through pressure applied by church leaders on the governor to, pers to persecute the kidnappers. On Monday, December 25th, 1843, Joseph and Hiram were awakened at one o'clock in the morning by a group of caroling saints. They blessed them and said that they thought a cohort of angels had come to visit them. Now, that afternoon, Joseph sat down with about 50 couples to have a Christmas dinner. The evening was spent in music and dancing. Now, while the festivities were proceeding, a man came to the door. His hair was long and falling over his shoulders, and he appeared to be drunk. Joseph requested the captain of the police put him out. A scuffle ensued, and Joseph had the opportunity to look the man full into the face, when to his great surprise and joy, he discovered that it was his tired and cruelly persecuted friend, Orrin Porter Rockwell. Orrin had just arrived from nearly a year's imprisonment without conviction in Missouri. He had been arrested in St. Louis for the attempted murder of Lalburn Boggs. He was freed with the help of Alexander Donovan after spending many months in the very same Liberty Jail in Clay County, Missouri that Joseph was imprisoned in. Of significant importance to Joseph was information that Oren obtained in independence while in jail. The Missourians felt that they could overthrow Mormonism and capture Joseph with the aid of a few of his most confidential friends. With this knowledge, Joseph swore 40 police officers into the police force of Nauvoo. Captain Jonathan Dunham was in command. Second in command was Charles C. Rich, followed by Hosea Stout and Shadrach Roundy. These men were addressed by both Joseph and Hiram, with the emphasis being on having integrity and not accepting bribes, which was commonly done. Nauvoo had become a haven for disreputable characters and corrupt apostates. Joseph feared that he might be betrayed and kidnapped and taken to Missouri. He told the officers, I am exposed to far greater dangers from traitors amongst ourselves than from enemies without. I have had pretended friends betray me. All the enemies upon the face of the earth may roar and exert all their power to bring about my death, but they can accomplish nothing unless some who are among us and have enjoyed our society, have been with us in our councils, participated in our confidences, taken us by the hand, called us brothers, and salute us with a kiss, join with our enemies. We have a Judas in our midst. Now some took offense to what Joseph said. Visually upset was William Law, Joseph's second counselor in the first presidency. He felt the police suspected that he was the traitor spoken of and felt he was being unduly harassed by them. Well, a special city council meeting was called on January the 2nd, 1844, to address his complaint. When it concluded, it was termed a misunderstanding, and William Law shook hands with the prophet and said, I quote, I will stand by you to the death. He then called the whole council and police force in to witness this declaration. Now, three days later, William Marks filed a similar complaint against the police for harassment. He felt that they had selected him as the Judas. He protested that the police had built a fire out in front of his home to intimidate him, not just for them to keep warm. Another city council was held to determine the source of these rumors. Wilson Law testified this time, as did Francis M. Higby. Now, Francis was rebuked by Joseph during the hearing for spreading rumors. 
At the conclusion of this hearing, General Wilson Law, like his brother three days earlier, said, and I quote, I am Joseph's friend. He has no better friend in the world. I am ready to lay down my life for him. Now, as a result of the rebuke Francis was given, he breathed out many warnings against the prophet. On January 16th, Francis M. Higby was brought up on a complaint filed by Orson Pratt for slander against the prophet. Joseph forgave him, and Francis said, and I quote, I will be his friend forever and his right-handed man. Now, these three men, William and Wilson Law and Francis Higby, personified Judas in every way, even to betrayal by a kiss. Obviously, they had forgotten the scripture found in 2 Nephi 9:34. Woe unto the liars, for they shall be thrust down to hell. On January 18th, the prophet enjoyed a brief break from his numerous visits to court. He held a cotillion party at the Nauvoo mansion and later took a sleigh ride with Emma. In mid-January, Joseph relinquished his role as host of the Nauvoo mansion and rented it to Ebenezer Robinson for $1,000 a year and board for the Smith family. It would be continued to be used as a boarding house. By the first of the year, anti-Mormon sentiment in Carthage, Warsaw, and Green Plains intensified. Nauvoo was slowly being strangled by the mob. At a meeting of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles on January the 29th, 1844, discussions evolved about the upcoming national election. The two primary candidates were President Martin Van Buren, who earlier had told Joseph, quote, Your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you, and Henry Clay, who had told the saints, quote, You had better go to Oregon for redress. It was proposed by Willard Richards and voted unanimously that the Saints would have an independent electoral ticket and that Joseph Smith would be the candidate for president. Joseph dictated a pamphlet entitled, quote, Views on the Powers and Policy of the Government of the United States. Fifteen hundred pamphlets were printed for distribution. The twelve were asked to travel into the eastern cities to campaign for the prophet. Joseph's platform would include some of the following. The Constitution was an inspired document. Slavery was to be abolished, and every slaveholder was to receive a fair price for the slaves by Congress. Prisons were to be turned into places where criminals could be taught useful trades and reform. He would lower taxes and establish a national bank. He felt Congress was too large and needed to be cut by two-thirds, and that Oregon, Texas, and Mexico should be part of the United States. He also felt that the president should be allowed to send troops into any part of the nation to put down uprising. Now, these were new and creative ideas that would eventually thrust Joseph into the arena of a serious contender. February saw continued temple building. One afternoon, William Weeks, the temple architect, came in for instruction. Joseph instructed him in relation to the circular windows that were to lighten the temple interior. Brother Weeks told Joseph that they were a violation of every known rule of architecture. The building was too low for round windows. Joseph said, and I quote, I wish you to carry out my designs. I have seen and visioned the splendid appearance of that building, illuminated, and will have it built according to the pattern shown me. On February 20th, 
With compounding problems surrounding Nauvoo, Joseph instructed the Twelve to send a delegation to California and Oregon to hunt for a good location to relocate the saints after the temple was built. Quote, a place where the devil cannot dig us out. Twenty-five elders were requested to make the exploration. Joseph then prophesied that, quote, within five years we should be out of the power of our old enemies. The 1st of March, 1844, saw the prophet ask for the work on the Nauvoo house to stop until the completion of the temple. He said, quote, we need the temple more than anything else. It seems at this time that the prophet became anxious about three things. First, the completion of the temple. Second, proper temple records to be kept. Third, the training of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles. At a meeting of the Twelve, Joseph told them, quote, Some important scene is near to take place. Perhaps I will be killed. This is why I want to give to you all the keys and powers that I hold. Then I can go with all pleasure and satisfaction, knowing that my work is done. He began to pace the floor, and rolling down the collar of his coat, he said, quote, I roll the burden and responsibility of leading this church off of my shoulders and onto yours. Now round up your shoulders and stand under it like men, for the Lord is going to let me rest a while. Joseph continued to, to make preparations for presidential candidacy by nominating James Arlington Bennett of Long Island as a candidate for vice president. However, Joseph learned later in the week that James Bennett was a native of Ireland and not constitutionally eligible to be a vice president. It was then thought to ask Colonel Solomon Copeland of Paris, Tennessee to run for president. Now, this is kind of interesting. This slide says relative to, uh, to Colonel Solomon Copeland, he says, according to Joseph's own notes, he was not a member of the church. In the interest of full disclosure, Joseph had to pick someone who was not a resident of Illinois, since the U.S. Constitution forbids both the president and vice president candidates from being from the same state. James Arlington was a member of the church. Um, kind of fascinating. James Arlington Bennett and Colonel Solomon Copeland. Of course, we know that Sidney Rigdon ultimately will be the, the choice. In the midst of presidential preparations, Joseph continued to care for the mundane problems of Nauvoo. In a speech delivered on March 5th, Hiram Kimball was censured for allowing boats to dock in Nauvoo without paying for wharfage. He also spoke of another man, Charles Foster, who had been writing the New York Tribune and spreading false lies about the construction cost of the temple. He continued saying, our difficulties and persecutions have always arisen from men right in our midst. On March the 9th, 1844, King Follett died. He died when a rope broke, dropping a load of rocks on his head as he was walling up a well. King Follett was one of the original members of the church, having joined in 1831. He stood in jail with Parley P. Pratt for many months in Missouri. Joseph called him our worthy brother. The next day, on Sunday, March the 10th, Joseph preached. He spoke on the spirit of Elijah and not being saved without the redeeming of our dead. Again, Joseph was concerned about the, the completion of the construction of the temple. He also met with the Twelve Apostles and organized a somewhat clandestine group called the Council of Fifty.
This group was a parapolitical organization that was given the responsibility of overseeing the settlement of Texas, which was a platform item for Joseph's presidential candidacy. They were also to be the governing body of the municipal government of the kingdom of God on earth. Joseph spent the next few weeks establishing the parameters of this particular group, the Council of Fifty. Of the 46 members of the Council of Fifty, 26 were also members of the Holy Anointed Quorum. The Twelve Apostles were the only priesthood quorum that was completely represented in both the Holy Anointed Quorum and the Council of Fifty. Joseph was again trying to put the Twelve in a position where they would be administering to both the Church and the Kingdom of God on earth. About this time, Joseph received some correspondence from Lyman White. Now, Lyman was in the southwest preaching to the Indians and suggested that the church migrate to Texas as its new home. Now, this slide's kind of fascinating. It refers to uh, the three discussions of this kind of uh, relocation effort. On February the 20th, 1844, well, let's start with February 15th. Latter-day Saints at Black River Falls, Wisconsin Territory, write to Joseph Smith suggesting that the tablelands of the Republic of Texas as an additional gathering place. And then later, on the 20th of February, Joseph Smith and the Apostles of Nauvoo begin planning for an expedition to Oregon Territory and the Mexican Territory of California to find a home for the Saints. And then a little later in March, Joseph Smith organizes the Council of Fifty in part to seek places of refuge in Texas or Oregon or somewhere in California. So this was an active topic for, this, for the leadership of the church, in particular the Council of Fifty. By mid-March, Joseph's candidacy for president was picking up steam. Articles written in the Iowa Democrat Quincy Herald and Illinois Springfield Register, as well as articles from the Eastern Press, depicted him as a man of character and that the other opponents in the field ought to be taking him seriously. Joseph continued to study the scriptures and ancient languages. He spent what free time he had studying German and Hebrew with Alexander Nybor. On Sunday, March the 17th, a great westerly wind blew through Nauvoo. It toppled one of the walls of the 70s hall that was being erected. There was also a severe snowstorm and thick ice. And then a few days later, hailstorm rocked Nauvoo. The elements were certainly against the saints and the construction of the temple. On March 23rd, the prophet and a few others made a house call to Mrs. Sarah Foster, it seems a report had come to the attention of Joseph that Dr. Foster had stated that Joseph had made a proposition to his wife. She denied that any such conversation had ever taken place with Joseph, but it was apparent that Dr. Foster was trying to ruin Joseph's reputation. Now, Dr. Robert Foster was a medical doctor as well as a county magistrate who joined the church in Nauvoo. He caused frequent difficulties for the prophet because of his lewd conduct and was excommunicated from the church in April of 1844. Now, his brother Charles was also instrumental in the regular persecution of the prophet. Now, Charles was not a member of the church. Finally, on Sunday, the 24th, Joseph's wrath was kindled enough that he went public with the names of those who had hatched the conspiracy to take his life and destroy the church. Chauncey L. Higby, 
Dr. Robert Foster, Joseph Jackson, William and Wilson Law, just a few of the names. These men were telling others that Joseph had killed those who did not agree with him while in Missouri and that Joseph needed to be removed permanently. Now, the plot was discovered by two young men, Denison L. Harris and Robert Scott. The two 17-year-olds were invited to attend a secret meeting of the conspirators at the home of William Law. They spoke with Denison's father, Emer Harris, brother of Martin Harris, who said the boys should lay the matter before the prophet. Joseph told the boys to go, but not to take any oaths. The meeting was attended to by over 200 people. The two boys remained quiet. William Law spent time explaining how Joseph was a fallen prophet. As the meeting progressed, each member was requested to take an oath. The boys refused and attempted to leave. They were detained and threatened with death. The boys still refused to accept the oaths. They were then taken to the cellar to be executed. As the boys were about to be executed, there arose a concern over their absence in the community. Well, the boys were threatened with death and sent home. The boys immediately sought out the prophet and told him the entire story. The courage and heroism of these two boys brought tears to the eyes of the prophet. Their courage spared Joseph's life for a short time. At the core of the destructive plot was William Law, a Canadian convert who migrated to Nauvoo. He became associated with Dr. Robert Foster, a real estate promoter and financier. Law's sharpness and skill were soon brought to the attention of Joseph, who thought he could help build the city. He soon became an officer serving in the Nauvoo Legion. Unfortunately, he measured everything, including the church, by a business standard. He began to criticize some of Joseph's decisions and policies. He was negative about building the Nauvoo house and the temple. And the rift between Joseph and he became acute when Joseph was instructing his inner circle in the doctrine of plural wives. Although William himself was guilty of adultery, he saw this revelation as a serious financial problem. If the doctrine ever surfaced in Nauvoo, he felt the city would be doomed and his opportunity to, to continue to milk it of its wealth would be gone. William Law was suspected by the prophet for many months as the traitor. Once William Law realized that Prophet had concrete evidence to link him to the conspiracy, he moved further underground and associated himself with other conspirators. His wife, Jane, his brother Wilson, Chauncey Higby, the criminal Joseph H. Jackson, with whom he offered $500 to kill the Prophet, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Foster also immediately supported him in all of his satanic plans. In a conversation with George A. Smith, Joseph pointed to William Law one evening and said, quote, There is the meanest man in this whole town. All the sorrow I ever had in my family or in this city arose through the influence of William Law. John Taylor declared, William Law is one of the verest syphocrats and hypocrites that ever disgraced the footstool of God. The prophet said, quote, We are sorry to find that our lawyers and magistrates should be taking the lead among gamblers and disorderly persons and be numbered among the lawbreakers. Now, this was in reference to the Higbees and Fosters, who earlier in April were arrested for assault, abusive language, threats, and gambling. In March of 1842, Nauvoo had been given permission to have a Masonic lodge built in the city. 
On April the 5th, 1844, it was completed and dedicated. About 550 members of the Masonic fraternity attended. The dedication was performed by the worshipful master, Hiram Smith. On April 5th, the general conference of the church began. It lasted five days. The first two sessions were occupied by Sidney Rigdon as he presented the history of the church. On the 7th, Hiram spoke about the need to complete the temple. Now, the afternoon session, Joseph spoke, and he spoke to over 20,000 saints. Now, the weather was dreary with wind and rain. The storm ceased, however, during the conference at the grove. It continued to storm on all sides of the grove, yet it was calm in the grove while Joseph spoke. Joseph took the opportunity to talk of King Follett's death. Joseph had been ill and unable to speak at his funeral. He began by addressing the character of God. During his discourse, he said, quote, God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heaven. Now, this doctrine was later aphorized by Lorenzo Snow, quote, As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. Joseph also taught that the German version of the Bible was the most accurate. He spoke of the counsels of God and the creation. He addressed the immortal intelligence of man. He taught of the relationship between man and God, and man's greatest responsibility was to seek for the salvation of the dead. He concluded his sermon with a discussion on the unpardonable sin and the necessity of seeking forgiveness for sins. It was also during this conference that Joseph made the infamous statement, You don't know me, you never will. I don't blame you for not believing my story. Had I not experienced it, I could not believe it myself. On April the 8th, Joseph continued his sermon by stating that the whole of the North and the South America is Zion. Quote, Henceforth, wherever the elders of Israel shall build up churches and branches unto the Lord, throughout, that, throughout the states there shall be a stake of Zion. On April the 9th, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball spoke. This was a grand and glorious conference of illuminating messages. In particular, the King Follett Discourse was one of the most enlightening and instructional orations ever given by the prophet to the saints. Now, this slide is interesting. It shows the, the continued growth of the church over the years. It takes us up through 2013 with 15 million. We have 17 million now, 2020. So you can see the steady growth as prophesied by the prophet. Shortly after this spiritual high, the prophet had to deal with some temporal lows. On April 18th, William Law, Wilson Law, Jane Law, and Robert Frost Foster were formally excommunicated from the church for unchristian conduct. And to make matters worse, the last of April saw Nauvoo hit by a torrential rainstorm that continued for many days. The rains and hail caused considerable damage in the city. The Mississippi River was higher than ever known by the oldest inhabitants. It appeared the elements, as well as the laws, the Higbys and the Fosters, were conspiring against the saints. On April 26, violence broke out involving the Fosters, Chauncey Higby, and the Prophet. In the arrest of Augustine Spencer, who had assaulted his brother Orson, the Fosters and Higbys were nearby, and they were asked to assist the arresting officer, but instead of helping, they attempted to interfere with the arrest. 
while the three were ordered arrested by Joseph for refusing to discharge their duty. Charles Foster pulled a gun on Joseph and threatened to shoot him. Joseph ordered him arrested, and a struggle ensued in which Charles and Robert Foster and Chauncey Higby resisted. The trial followed with sworn testimony that the three said that they would consider themselves, quote, the favored of God for the privilege of shooting or ridding the world of such a tyrant as Joseph. Well, the conspirators were each fined $100. Had not Robert Foster been subdued by an alert sheriff, he certainly would have shot Joseph. Now, this is a really interesting slide reading from the record of this particular incident. It's kind of convoluted, but it's kind of fun to go through. It says, 10 a.m., Marshall went up on hill to arrest August. Spencer or Augustine Spencer for an assault on his bro, I'm sure that's brother, Orson Spencer, as the assault in his own home. Robert D. Foster, Charles Foster, Chauncey L. Higby came down. Charles Foster drew a pistol toward me on the steps of my office. I ordered him to be arrested and the pistol taken from him. A struggle ensued in which Charles Foster, R.D. Foster, and Chauncey L. Higby resisted and I ordered them to be arrested. They resisted, and I, Mayor, ordered the high policeman to be called in his posse. And I went on to try Spencer, find him $100, bonds for to keep the peace six months. $100. Bonds appealed to municipal court. At once, R.D. Foster, Chauncey L. Higby, and Charles Foster for resisting the authorities of the city. Orrin Porter Rockwell sworn, the marshal sworn, said Dr. Foster swore by God that he would not assist the marshal and swore by God that they would see the mayor in hell before they would go. Same people who said they would stand by Joseph forever and be his friend to the bitter end. On Sunday, April 28, the conspirators held a meeting. It was held at William Law's home. The purpose was to establish a new church, the true church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that's what they called it. William Law was appointed the new prophet with Austin Coyles and Wilson Law as his counselors. Robert Foster and Francis Higby were to be two of the twelve apostles, and they chose Charles Ivan as bishop. And we'll depart from this bitterness. The first of May brought a theatrical exhibition to Nauvoo. A number of performances brought a little humor and enjoyment to the furrowed brow of a very concerned prophet. The performance was held in the newly built Masonic Lodge. Brigham Young starred in one of these performances called Pizarro. On May 6th, Sidney Rigdon was nominated to be the candidate for Vice Presidency of the United States, mostly out of default. It was not the prophet's first choice by any means. The St. Louis, Oregon newspaper published an article stating that General Smith had a good chance at the presidency of the United States and his views were sound. Okay, we'll bring us to our last slide of this podcast. May 7th will go down in the annals of church history as a very dark and sinister day. William Law and his co-conspirators turned to a campaign of slander, lies, and gossip. With the arrival this day of a printing press, they announced plans to begin the publication of a newspaper in Nauvoo under the very provocative name of the Nauvoo Expositor. Now, next time we meet for podcast number 21, we'll be getting into a detailed description of what 
and how ultimately Joseph is going to be and become a prisoner in Carthage jail and continue to follow his footsteps and we hope again that this material is assisting and helping as you study your Doctrine and Covenants. So until then, uh, appreciate you uh, tuning in and being a part of our program. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little known facts and research about American and church history. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes and we would love to invite more to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com.